This is Dr. Laura Gouge, and you are listening to The Practice Sessions, the podcast where we combine practical advice with powerful inspiration to support you in creating the practice of your dreams. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today, who is Dr. Megan Culver. Megan is one of the co-founders at Northwest Integrative Medicine here in Tualatin, Oregon. And in this episode, Dr. Megan gives such great advice for how to start a practice when you are really fresh out of residency, how to balance running a clinic and seeing patients, especially in the beginning, how we can be ourselves with our patients, and how to have some semblance of work-life balance. My co-host on today's episode is Katie Pickworth, who is a graduating student at NUNM, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And as always, you can check out www.thepracticesessionspodcast.com for more information after the episode. Enjoy. Hey, Megan. So thanks for coming and joining us for our podcast today. Wonderful to be here. Yeah. So the first question we like to ask everyone is, can you give us a sense of just what your practice is like right now? So um, my sister-in-law and I started our company back in 2015 after I moved here um, from Bastyr, where I did my residency. And since then, it's been kind of a slow, steady build. Uh, we're a family medicine practice. We do primary care medicine and adjunctive care, servicing things like chronic pain management, fibromyalgia, uh, mental health management, pediatrics, you name it. The things all of us like to do, and then we kind of each have our own specialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have probably 2,000 patients in our system. Now, not all of them come in as regularly as everyone else, but keeps us pretty busy. We're still growing every month, so it's constant adaptation. So wait, you graduated in 2016? I graduated in 2015. Sorry, 15. You did residency and then started your own clinic. Yeah, two years of residency up at Bastyr, Mm -hmm. which I loved the second year. First year is just like figuring out what the heck is going on and realizing that you're liable for every decision you make. So it's kind of like a daily panic attack. And then you just are so burnt out. So that's first year. Second year at Bastyr, at least you get to do a public uh, health rotation. And while that was the most challenging thing I have ever done in my life, it really helped me understand what a working clinic is actually like and what real people are like outside of the bubble. Gave me inspiration that we can really help a lot of people that didn't even know what naturopathic medicine is. So you also just started a residency at your practice, right? Yep, beginning of the year. What made you decide to bring on a resident? Dr. Jameson actually approached us when she graduated. We had mentioned she'd precepted with me and said, you know, another residency she was looking at didn't work out and asked if we would build her one. So we were by no means ready. And she ended up working at our clinic for almost 14 months to help build the position, get her patient volume up to where we could support her. Uh, And then we kind of designed the residency together to be something that gives her primary care experience, some business exposure, things that we both value and share. But now that it's going, it's still it's still work, mostly mm-hmm. scheduling, but it's actually just really awesome collaboration. It keeps me on my toes, keeps me learning. Her passions are different than mine, so I'm constantly thinking, you like digestive stuff. Okay, I guess I need to go on up to date and read about this condition that you're asking me about. So, okay, I relate a lot to what you said about the residency experience. It was very much similar for me. Like first year, you like don't 
you don't know anything. And so you're just kind of overwhelmed all the time with the liability that you've taken on. And then second year, you get to start having some fun. But so coming straight out of that experience, what gave you the courage to open your own clinic? I wish I could say that it was courage. It really was just a lack of a job market. I felt like you know, residency, there's not enough for everybody. So the fact that I had two years, in my mind, I was hot shit. Pardon my language. But it's one of those things where I thought I would be so able to get a job, a good job right away. And when I looked, what was available was aesthetic medicine and crappy independent contractor positions where I wasn't going to be given anything and I'd be giving up at least 60% of what I was making. So I was ready to settle, and my sister-in-law basically said, you know you want to start your own practice. We talked about it before. You're already moving to a new place. You're already starting from scratch. Why wouldn't you invest building all of that in your own space? So I think if I if she hadn't pushed me, and if she hadn't said she would do it with me, I probably wouldn't have. But it's worked out well. I still have days where I daydream about Zoom care and working 8 to 5 and then being done, but... Then I think, what would my actual quality of life and patient care be? And it makes it worth it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I feel like it's not always the courage that makes us take that leap. Sometimes it's just the state of affairs. I know that's how a lot necessity of things... Necessity is yeah. what is, I feel like something of invention. Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's when you really need something that you'll make it happen. And desperation... It is financial most of the time in our industry. We hit the point where if you come out of residency, you're salaried on residency. It's like as much as you're working way more than your friends that are casually building their independent contractor position up, you get paid every month. Yeah, at least at, a, at my clinic, I had health insurance. I had really awesome health insurance. $15 massages? Come on. There's no insurance plan in the market that does that here. I know as a resident, you don't make much money, but it still had been more money than I'd ever made before. Mm-hmm. And it was steady. Yeah. So you can't really argue with that. Well, I still can say $15 an hour is pretty abysmal for a doctor. <laughs> However, benefits package. The other thing is like sick days. If you're an independent contractor, you lose money if you are sick or take a vacation. But if you're salaried, it doesn't really hit you. So when you stop getting checks... That's when you really start thinking, how am I going to generate income for myself? Because I, I have to. I have this debt payment that is just getting bigger and bigger every month, even though I'm making the payment that they say my you know, income-based repayment is. My debt has done nothing but go up. Uh, that is a, is a scary thing that really makes you reach because you kind of have to be bold if you're ever going to pay off this amount of debt. Sorry, guys. The debt is real. So it was really just like the timing, it sounds like, that you and Stephanie, your sister-in-law, were in the same place, same time of like both being ready to... She was not ready. Okay. To be clear, she had just started, (laughs) she had just taken a contract for her second year residency. So it was that she wanted to do this with me and we made the timing work because I did not want to do this by myself. Mm-hmm. As extroverted as I may seem now, uh, it, I'm a very not happy to talk in public about what I do kind of person. And while I can force myself to be an inner-retentive type A detail-oriented person, that hurts my soul because I am a wild free bird that just wants to let things unfold. So business ownership is not uh, an easy thing if you don't have all of that. You have to have someone that's detail-oriented. You have to have someone that's willing to go out and talk to the public. You have to have someone that is taking a really high perspective, you know, the 20,000 foot or eagle view and someone who can walk in the trenches. 
And doing all of that as a single person is very, very difficult. In the first year where I was working by myself, it was, by working by myself, I mean in the clinic. Stephanie was still working with administration stuff, but day to day, it is uh, a lot to manage in addition to patient care, which is an emotionally draining experience when you're first figuring out how do I stay present in the moment? How do I have real meaningful connections and show empathy and compassion and yet not walk away carrying 10 people's, you know, entire history, especially, you know, the trauma that you hear is present every day in my clinic. I have people with the craziest, most horrible stories I've ever heard. And I have to hear that and witness it and then go home and be happy. That is a tough year of learning how to do that. Hopefully only a year, sometimes 10, you know, keeps coming back around and around again. Probably have experience with that in mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would love to talk more about how we balance uh, keeping our selves sane and happy while also still showing up. But I'm curious about something that you said of just that first year when you're starting out and you're having to balance being a doctor and starting your own clinic. Like you're responsible for a lot of things beyond patient care. And I'm just curious, I mean, do you have any advice for balancing those two things? I think, so when I started, I wanted my patient availability to be everything it could be. So I had my patient hours set at basically eight to five, you know, and I didn't have a full docket, but by creating that sort of availability, that was in and of itself kind of draining. It is important to go to work and be there from eight to five or be in meetings because you want to be active and moving. And I think when you first start, it's mostly just like anchor points. Here's my next project I'm going to do because it's, it's hard to only have a couple patients a week when you first start. It's you're like, what did I do? Where are my patients going to come from? So you have to anchor yourself. But I also really learned for myself that setting aside specific admin tower uh, hours where I'm not getting interrupted, where I'm not answering phones, where I'm not seeing patients is really important for my meetings because I do a lot of networking. And it's really important for my week to week tasks to have a set aside time because otherwise I was taking it home at night which is not a good habit to get into. You're going to do it at times, but as much as possible, you should have set hours that you're working and then you should leave it and go home. Even if you're a business owner, that doesn't always happen. I've definitely worked 60 hour weeks many, many, many times. However, I really try to limit those to scheduled 60 hour weeks. I'm gonna work four hours on Saturday and then I'm gonna put my computer away and I'm not gonna answer the phone, you know, whatever those lines are, that's I think the hardest habit to really get into. The other thing is timing. Like when you're in school, everything is on a quarter system and everything comes to this penultimate final week of hell that is 15 tests and sleep deprivation, but then you have a week off and you reset and suddenly all your classes start brand new and your shifts are brand new. But in real life, there is no endpoint that you do not self-generate. And that for someone who is achievement oriented is really hard to handle because there is no final line that you're reaching for. That was a huge depression for me my first year was just like, even graduating school, then you hit the like, oh my God, I just put five years into this and now it's done. Now what am I even reaching for? You're so burnt out that just coming up with the next step is its own process. And then you do residency and you're like, okay, that was my next step. And now what am I doing? Or then I start my business. What am I even reaching for? Hmm. So really coming up with 
it's not real. This isn't even a real thing when you're first starting because you don't know what you're going to like and what you're not going to like. Just like when you started school, you probably had completely different ideas about what you wanted to do than when you graduate. Set a 20-year goal. Like, we're, we're saying we want a franchise. That's our, like, pie-in-the-sky dream is having five clinics with being able to employ 30 physicians, 30 NDs, or whatever that goal is. Put it out there. Okay, if I ever want to get there, how do I do it? What is 10 years from now? Where would I probably need to be? And you're kind of making it up when you first start. You have no idea what real is. Like, I'm going to generate $50,000 in profit this year. Good luck. You know, whatever that is, set the set the goal. Right. And then adjust. It's That's- a, I think it's a balance between being open to discovering just what's going to happen in life as it's going to happen. But I agree with what you said about you need to figure out something that you're reaching for because that depression when you're no longer striving because, you know, you're in school, you're striving, you're like, there's the, you know, your board entrance exams and you pass them and you decide you're going to aim for residency. Then you get a residency, you decide, oh, wow, there's this comp- this competition to get a second year, a third year, and then it's over. And I know for me, that first year after residency ended felt really aimless, where even though I had aspirations, I didn't really know what I was doing and it didn't look like I thought it was going to look. But I know for me thinking about, well, where do I want to be in five years really helped with making different career choices because you know, short-term money isn't always the best thing. It's like, yes, we have to pay our bills. We have to have somewhere to live. But it's like, you know, making choices so that I knew in five years I'd be a better doctor. I'd have a specialty. I'd have a niche. I'd have something to really offer people and know that I could guarantee those results when, you know, when you're in school and you don't know anything. You can't make those promises to people. And if you do, you're not being honest with yourself or them. Yes, You know, that's the hard part is when you start, the best thing you're selling when you start is your passion and your enthusiasm. Like when I would see patients as a resident, you know, you're like, yeah, I'm brand new. Welcome. I'm your doctor now. Not an easy sell. But the thing is, I'm going to research everything way more than someone who's been in practice 10 years has because I want to make sure. Also, I'm scared. So I'm going to research even more and I'm going to consult and you better bet I'm going to monitor you. I also only have 10 patients, so I really am going to care about every single one of them. You know, so you have to find the thing that is real and that you are adding to the table. You don't need to be anything more than you are. Mm -hmm. Like from residency to 20 years in, we're all offering something that is unique and valuable. And that's, you're not going to kill someone after you graduate, hopefully. You know, like (laughs) you're, you're going to know how to not kill people. You're going to know how to be safe. Beyond that, now it's how do you be yourself while doing that? Because we all have the doctor facade that we've learned or the like, here's what I wear when I see patients so that they think I know what I'm talking about. That is way less important to the patient than you being present with them 90% of the time. Some people need the show and then you give them the show because you've practiced it. But most of the time you don't need that and you're going to have a much better interaction and you're going to feel way less exhausted at the end of the day if you just are yourself. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) So I've worked with you a fair amount. And one of the things that I most admire about you is that you're able to maintain this sense of self with your patients. But I'm wondering in this conversation how you also cultivate boundaries, both work-life boundaries and boundaries with patients in the room and how you have been able to 
cultivate not bringing it home with you? Or if that's still something that you're working on? I think that's when I know I'm getting out of balance. Like I was really not good with boundaries. I am super warm with my patients and I treat them all like family because that's what I would want for my family is someone who listens and cares. Now do it, is that friendship beyond that room? No, it's a very contained sort of friendship, but I've learned through, you know, all the self-help books in the world and a bunch of leadership training on how to just accept that I am who I am. And I still get challenged with it for sure. But most of the time, so today I had a patient come in, acute mental health add-on at 4.30 in the afternoon. I've known this patient a long time. I'm not their primary, but I've worked with the mental health, like I do craniosacral with them and visualization, mindfulness kind of development. She comes in and after being gone for two weeks, She has to leave her vacation early to come home to put her therapy animal down. So she is understandably in a crazy emotional state, super flared, hasn't slept, hasn't ate in four days, has lost about 10 pounds, is visibly emaciated. Um, And I have a therapy animal. You know, I have a dog that has just gone through her own diagnosis in the last month that, you know, is like, is going to be okay. Now I know, but I have very real emotions that are very similar to what she's going through. So I'm close enough with this patient to know that I'm at risk, right? And I'm close enough to this type of situation to recognize in myself like, Ooh, this is one where I could make it about me and not about the patient. And that's kind of my boundary trigger is like, if I'm tempted to share about my story, that's my line that I'm already way over invested in making it about me. So that's first line. Then it's take a deep breath, you know, and my patients see me do it all the time. I get hyper or I get really excited or I get on a train of thought that's not where I actually mean to go. And I will just stop and I will take a deep breath and shut my eyes and demonstrate what I would like them to be able to do, which is take a minute if you need a minute and put up a boundary if you need a boundary or respect your own boundary. So you take a deep breath and I acknowledge what I'm feeling, which is tremendous compassion and empathy. And just that, you know, I know I could cry if I let myself, it's not just experience. It's like almost indulging in your own emotions while you're with someone in that state. Like I could indulge my own sadness and my own story, but that's not going to serve the patient. What's going to serve them best is if I show them compassion, if I normalize what they're going through, if I talk with their primary care about their medications, because they're on way higher force interventions than I know how to manage uh, in terms of mental health medication. And then I make sure that they know their resources. You know, it's like, that's my job as a doctor is to show them that I care. And I I fully acknowledge that I care. And then I put that to the side because that caring is 10% of the situation when someone's in acute flare. Now, when I get out of balance, it's very different. And you'll see like borderline personality disorder, I do not know how to work with yet. And it is like the constant challenge. And unfortunately, I will say my weakness is that and that I let it go too far to where the relationship relationship gets so far to balance that is no longer functional. And we have to terminate because they've started abusing my staff or are demanding things or are pushing their own meds in a way that I was trying to be respectful and be compassionate and what they really needed was much more rigorous boundaries than what I normally hold with patients. And so that's my learning curve. And I will continue to have that learning curve 
because I will continue to have borderline personality patients because I don't discriminate against trauma victims. You know, Mm -hmm. if you see people who have trauma, you're going to see people who have borderline personality disorder. It's not a genetic condition. It is something that happens to people as a result of trauma. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, what's your advice on this? That's to me, that is the bane of my clinic. Every one of us has one of those patients that's just like, yeah, what do I do with this person? They want everything from me. And if I don't give it to them, then I'm the devil. And now all this friendship and camaraderie that we built up is nothing. Right. Well, I think, okay. First of all, when you're working with people who have personality disorders, I feel like often the best thing is holding that loving boundary is sometimes the most therapeutic thing that you can offer, even if they're having a reaction. I mean, I feel like 101 of not taking your patients home with them, with you, is letting them have whatever reaction they have. Mm -hmm. And it takes work to not take that personally because sometimes they make it very personal. But, you know, doing the work on ourselves to remember like, oh yeah, this has nothing to do with me. This is just, they have a history of trauma, whatever it is. But then there's the the rest of people, which I feel like it's a really small percentage of people who do push boundaries and where you realize, I know for me, a lot of my boundaries had to become set when I realized what wasn't working in clinic policies and things like that. But I know for me, when people are sharing just really traumatic events and things that are really painful and really hard, I let myself have whatever experience I have while trying to remember obviously it's not about me but if I try to suppress feeling sad for them or feeling emotion it almost just like gets bigger but if I can let it just pass through me it's fine you know because sometimes people share these horrific things you know like I had a woman who just she experienced like more trauma than I could ever even imagine it was like more than I'd ever seen in a movie like the people who had hurt her and raped her and betrayed her and um it was just, I just let myself like feel that sadness wash through. And, and, and if you let it come through, I feel like it's pretty brief. And I could just be with her. I could just have compassion and have love. And I didn't feel like I took it home with me. And every now and then things happen that are so sad that I do, you know, I do take it home and I talk to my partner about it. And we, you know, have a conversation where I'm just like, hey, this thing happened to this person. And you have to give what your... does the world mean anymore? Yeah, you have yeah. To, you have to find appropriate space. Mm-hmm. So, like for me, it's like usually talking to like a colleague or my partner and just being like, "Can I just talk about this for five minutes so that I have somewhere appropriate to take it, so it's not like part of me and I'm not thinking about them or you know." Um, and that's a tracking device. That's what I've noticed is like the people that I need to do that five minute vent with more and more are the people that I've become too entrenched with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tools, like in terms of what I, I love, is the letting it flow through you. I absolutely agree with that. If I don't, if I try to put my wall up, then I carry it a lot more. Yes. For sure. Like the moment is more intense, but if you can learn to, as Brene Brown would say, be comfortable with the uncomfortable, then it just moves through you and yeah. then the moment is over. And so while I still feel compassion for that person, I'm... I'm not going to really need to vent about that situation beyond that. I mean, I'm telling the primary care provider and doing normal care, but it's not the same emotional involvement as I would have had my first year where I could have had a whole therapy session over just like the wah sesh of what it evoked in me. And, you know, it's when you first get out, you're so emotionally depleted from having pushed so hard for so long that it's harder to keep that boundary, even if you know you're supposed to. 
But as you get, you know, more structured in clinic policy, whoa, what a safety net for controlled substances, for follow-ups, for clinic policies, for behavior in the office. I love blaming policy and I wrote the policy, you know, like, and my patients know that, but I'm like, it's clinic policy. We have to drug test you. It's not because I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You know, like whatever it is, like those are really helpful. Group practice is super helpful for this. Like having a group of colleagues, whether you work with them in your office or not, that you're regularly sharing cases with improves your self-care because you witness, you observe, you interact with something that is distance from you, but you can learn the lesson from that experience. And we all talk with each other about cases because most of us work with each other's patients anyway, but they know if I go and sit in a certain chair, it's like, okay, that we need five minutes. Let's shut the door. And then you get it out, but Mm -hmm. set the limit. Five minutes is all you should need. If it's more than that, you know, you have personal work that you need to be doing that is affecting your ability to be a good doctor. Yeah, I totally relate. I mean, I feel like the amount I got triggered my first year, I mean, especially when I was a student and first starting, and then compared to now, it's so much less. And I experience things that are, you know, I witness and am present to things far more horrific than when I first started. Yeah. And it's, it takes so much more, I think, to get triggered now. But it's like a practice of I had to do that work as a student and as a resident. And, you know, patients triggered me a lot more in the beginning. But I think holding it as just, oh, this is somewhere I need to look at for myself and to do that work, I think it's the only way to stay balanced. One other trick someone taught me when I first started, because that was less intuitive, was uh, almost like the room I'm surrounded where there's mason jars all over the walls, is when you're done with the patient, make sure you take that emotional baggage and put it up on the wall and leave it in the clinic. You can always come back to it when you come back, but Just like you would tell your patients, sleep, rest, recovery, you need those things for your body to continue adapting well to its situation. And I keep using that word adapting because there's no right answer. And you think you get it figured out and then something happens and if you are stuck in your belief system about how things are supposed to be, that is when businesses fail. And historically, when we look around the Portland metro area, if you look at businesses that fail... It's because they got entrenched in one idea of how things were supposed to work and they didn't adapt soon enough for for them to stay profitable, which is your mission statement, just to be clear, profitability, which means you get to make money. You have to do it. It's a hard thing. I think that cash mentality is, I'll say it a thousand times. I did not become a doctor to become rich, but I did not become a doctor to live on Medicaid. You know, like you have to take care of yourself because I want to afford naturopathic care. And unfortunately, we're not as well covered as pharmaceuticals. You know, if I want to afford my 36 supplements, thank God I'm not on that many. But, you know, the, the supplements that it takes to maintain my high stress work life balance, I need to make money. It's mm-hmm. not a bad thing. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, too, if you're just getting started, that your patients are going to actually respect you less if you're discounting your services and giving things away for free and you're really undervaluing yourself. Like, I think people often respect what they pay for. Or assuming they can't pay for stuff. Yeah, and there's a temptation if someone comes in and they kind of make a face when you say how much your services cost. Like, hold your, your prices. I think that it makes them when people have to invest in it um it serves them more and if you're discounting things for them or being like oh we won't charge you for this one it doesn't help anyone 
Also, it's unethical, mm-hmm. all right, to do that for one person and not for everyone. So if you're going to do a discount program, do it for everyone. We are very generous with our low-income patients because we want them to be able to afford things. We discount our medicinary heavily, you know, mm-hmm. for those patients. I'm okay with that because they still have to pay something to get it, you know. I want people to have to, you have to sweat for what you're getting or it means nothing. Not always. Some Medicaid, like low-income patients, you'd want to bend over backwards for them because they really are in that situation where they need a hand up. They cannot dig themselves out of the situation. But that is way less than we in our um, poverty mentality assume of Mm -hmm. other people. Right. And put it in writing. Like my clinic has a really clear sliding scale policy. So it's like it has clear income brackets and then it's um, it's the same for absolutely everybody. What um, if you're in the insurance model, what I recommend for your prices is to use the workman's comp schedule Hmm. because it's the highest paying. Now, that sounds not great for what we're talking about, trying to make things affordable for patients. But if you're taking insurance contracts, you are never, ever going to get paid what your billable rate is. If you have cash pay patients, you are able to offer a time of service or cash pay discount, and you can set that however you like. Um, I think that there are some limits on what you can do, but it's not unreasonable to offer a pretty hefty discount on those. That makes them comparable to what you would pay at a cash pay clinic otherwise. But it is important to set those insurance bill rates high because if you bill lower than what your contract rate is, they will pay you lower than your contract rate. And you don't want to lose money on insurance contracts because they are already paying us 60 cents on the dollar compared to nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, and medical doctors for the same exact codes. So don't give any of that money away. That's helpful. Um, I know when I started, I was like, where do I look to know how much I should charge per hour? Like, who decided this? So that's actually Just do what we all resource. do and stalk everyone around you. You look up <laughs> all their clinics, and some of them list cash prices, and that's good. That's how you gauge things. More people are not listing them um, yeah. than they used to, but a lot of people would just have, you know, like... What was the clinic I looked at in California? It was like four fifty for a new patient, which just made my head explode. Four hundred fifty dollars. I would love to see four hundred fifty dollars from a new patient outside of any services or supplements rendered. And then it was two fifty for follow ups. Whereas I think for insurance, workman's comp, I know follow up two on fours are two hundred nine bucks, and I think it's more like four hundred for a two o four. You know, is insurance rates, but what you actually get paid is maybe 50% of that most of the time. And if you're taking United, Cigna, Aetna, any of the ASH networks, you're going to be paid way way less than that. If you can hear me laughing, it's because I've been paid $5 from an insurance company for a 99214 visit when the patient paid $35. And then I was paid $8 for a venipuncture on the same patient. So (laughs) they paid you less for the office visit. Less for my 40 minute office (laughs) visit than they did for me having an MA poke the person you know it just support the oamp i'm just gonna say we need this money we need the legislative funds please absolutely yeah absolutely this has been a very business-centric conversation (laughs) which is very informative to me as a fourth year medical student but is not something that i can contribute to as much as (laughs) totally some other conversations that i've had for the podcast I think business is where I'm at because it's one of those things that when you're a business owner, you have to keep your owner hat on 
you can't just be a provider anymore. And it has impacted my patient care because I know how things work. In some ways for the better. Mm -hmm. I can tell my patients how their insurance is going to work and I can work that system better than anyone else in my clinic. So do you still see patients full time? I see patients half time. Half time. Okay. Because you're doing clinic. You you run the clinic too, right? Yeah. I'm the office manager. So I run, um, I'm the president and office manager and Stephanie is the CMO. So she runs a lot of like creating procedures and Mm -hmm. she does, I wear sandals to work. I don't touch needles. Like cranio is the procedure that I do. That's it. She does all sorts of crazy needle jockey stuff. So She's in charge of safety because I wouldn't know the first thing about that. Also, as I mentioned, detail-oriented is really important for a CMO. President, good for that 20,000-foot view, creative, entrepreneur mind. And we both have both, but we kind of know how to wrangle each other a little bit better. (laughs) Sounds like you balance each other out perfectly. Now, right after years of figuring out what that (laughs) would be and, you know, family business... You have ups and downs. We There's uh-huh. always been love and mutual respect, and yet disagreements are made much more uncomfortable at a Thanksgiving table when you both are partners in a business. You know, it just is, you don't escape it. You're never away from that person as much as you would be if it was, you know, a corporate investor or something like that. They, you don't care what they think about you. I care what Stephanie thinks. I respect her. She's my sister-in-law. You know, she's yeah. one of my best friends. It's I take it personally when she says stuff. And that's the same thing with being a doctor and a patient is being a business partner. You got to put the personality aside sometimes and just wear your business hat. Yeah. I feel like the reality is most people start clinics with someone they're close to. That's just what I've seen. When I look at my graduating class, people started clinics with their significant other, their best friend, or someone in their family. Do you think there's, is there any like safeguard? Is there any like, did you do anything to try to protect your relationship with Stephanie when you started? Well, I mean, you do the best you can to talk about worst case scenarios. And that's what you really have to address is like, what if this doesn't work out? Mm -hmm. Who owns the company? Who's going to stay working here? Who's going to do this? And Legally, that's called a buy-sell agreement, which we invested in as soon as we got a lawyer. You know, we got it in paper because business is business. And I come from a family that has a lot of businesses. So I know what it, you know, my parents own their company together. Bicker, 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 bicker. But they get it done, you know. Brother owned his own company, went through a buy-sell with someone he didn't know that well. Very different experience in terms of boundary set and negotiation and I think when you're working with someone you know, there's the both and. Like, thankfully, there's more compassion. You know their strengths and their weaknesses, so you're maybe more realistic going into it. However, if you cannot separate your business from your personal, it is a super tough life. So um, divorces happen. Uh, People move. Mm -hmm. uh, People die. uh, People don't like you after a while. You know, those things all... Horrible things happen, and you don't want them to, but you better have an exit strategy. And I think just knowing that that's in place and knowing that neither of you wants to ever get there because you've had to talk with lawyers about how much things cost really makes you work things out a little bit better. Yeah, Um, I think totally. Like having that worst case scenario in writing, like right from the get-go, makes it a lot less stressful. Um, Because I know my dad, he's an entrepreneur, and he always said it's super easy to start a business with someone until you start making money that's when things go south is when you're turning a profit. So sometimes it takes a couple years to get there. Which is the other expectation, which is 
how am, how is compensation going to work in this? Yeah. And if you own a clinic, you're compensated separately as an owner than you are as a provider. Mm-hmm. And so that is a very important thing to distinguish because, so as I mentioned, Stephanie was in residency. I was seeing patients. So as owners, we still are equal partners, but I am generating income for the clinic. So how is that getting compensated for? You know, those are the types of things that thankfully, you know, I went out and mentored with or menteed with other clinic owners and asked them the worst case scenarios. And one of them was this exact thing. One was an acupuncturist and one was an ND. Great partnership, right? Except that per square foot, an acupuncturist is not going to bring in as much money as a doctor is ever. Mm -hmm. You can't. You know, like they just don't generate as much out their long treatment times versus what you can turn over in a provider's office, but they were getting paid 50% each. So the doctor felt really upset about this because she was one, she was working more hours. So that kind of compounded the situation, but also she was generating way more income for the clinic and yet taking home the same amount as someone who was working less hours and bringing less into the clinic. So setting that up in advance, thinking about what are the different roles? You know, this is something that I think, um, there's a book called The E-Myth and it was one of those networking things where you go and they're like, this is the book. And it took me a year to read it because I, I don't like business books that much, but it essentially breaks out that you should divide your clinic into all the different positions that you want to have in the future. Not what you have right now, but I want a reception, I want a medical assistant, I want providers, then I want a president and I want a CMO. And then we went, if we want different clinics, we want a lead provider and an office manager. And then that's who, you know, who's supervising who and what are their roles. And then even though I'm doing, like when I start, every single one of those roles, I know what each one of them is. And then when I'm ready to hire someone, I know what that compensation is and I know what their responsibilities are. That clarity really helped us figure out equal balance and who's doing what what responsibilities, what departments we're managing, who we're managing or taking the lead management on. We're not that big of a clinic. And yet there's a lot of conversations that need to be had from a business perspective and knowing who's going to have them both in the interpersonal situation and also from who knows what they're talking about and who has the authority in that situation needs to be clear for you as the owner, but even more importantly for your staff and employees to know who are they supposed to talk to, mm-hmm. who is actually in charge of them, and who are they in charge of. That can create chaos 100%, which team, yes, we want team mentality, but doctors outrank MAs, period. If a doctor tells you to do something, you have to do it. That's clear. doesn't mean you're not nice, but if I say go grab a lab, she goes. She knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in the job description. Yeah, it's in the contract. Here's the paper. Yeah, I feel like whether you run your own clinic or you're just negotiating a a contract to work somewhere, talking through all those different aspects of like, what are the expectations? What are the roles? It's just like, comes down to expectation management. But I feel like that's where so many things go south is just where we didn't have a conversation that needed to happen. And a lot of what I learned early on was I didn't even know there were conversations I should have been having and negotiating. You know, there are things missing from the first contract I ever signed because it didn't occur to me to talk to the clinic owner about those things. Like, how many patients a week would they be sending me? And, you know, what is the... Are they scheduling for me? Yeah, are they scheduling for me? Who does marketing? Am I giving up a percentage of my income and doing 100% of my own marketing? You know, that type of thing. Or It's really great to get it all in writing before you even get started. 
And I think that comes, you have to go and get into the types of clinics you want to work in to yeah. know what those issues are. You because, can't take a class in it. Like it, you have well, to do and it. you can't go to the clinic, you know, the NUNM clinic and experience real life mm-hmm. it, or best year. I mean, I told everybody, this is nothing like real life. <laughs> it is this fantasy world of, we have a billing department, you know, we have a full reception team. We have secondaries, you know, like when you start, you no longer have a secondary. Do you know how much work just that piece of your life has become until you can afford an MA, which is what a secondary is, is essentially a sec. they're treated like <laughs> medical assistants. Or if you have a preceptor, free medical assistant, if they're good with a stick. Otherwise, you're you're getting a lot less bang for your buck in that situation. <laughs> you have a free liability. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the team environment and mentors and being a mentee and I'm just wondering how you choose the people in your life I guess both as a mentee how do you choose your mentors and as an employer how do you choose your employees that's a good question so I look at people who have similar trajectories in their either personal practice and their work-life balance but you know you pick the aspect that you're weakest on so when I was in my first year of residency, it was really about practice management and like just how do I chart and how do I code? And so I had a doctor who, uh, Dr. Dodge, great physical medicine. And like he really taught me how to work that system as a primary care provider and pushed me to learn, you know, to really know the science behind things. And then as I went on, I wanted to learn more about these complex care patients that don't fit the single complaint. So then I worked with an environmental medicine doctor and started shadowing him more. Or what's my weakness? That's what I went for. Now I'm more like Dr. Carrie Baldwin-Sayer. She has the trajectory in her professional career that I really admire what she's done for a profession and how she represents us in the public. And um, I'm more interested, as I've owned a business, in our public relations and how are we as as a profession not going to become either osteopaths, meaning that we sacrifice the core values and things that we are in order to make money or that we do what naturopaths did before, which is we fall off the map and become 10 people that are trying to make our medicine survive. Like neither one of those is a viable long-term solution to our, the healthcare problems that our country is facing, you know, but my belief is naturopathic physicians are the answer to the primary care crisis. Like we are the medicine people want We are trained in excellent primary care. Perhaps we need more charting and practice management support, but the medicine we have is awesome. We're ready for it. We just need to get jobs that pay us to do that. Yeah. I feel like naturopathic medicine, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is for exactly what you're talking about is to have more of those conversations of like, well, how do we work together to really do this and do it well and to create something sustainable moving forward where we can be successful and do good work. Because I really believe that naturopathic medicine really thrives where allopathic medicine ends, where I think they're so amazing with the acute, with the like emergent, with the serious, but within chronic disease, they off like there's limits. And that's where patients often end up seeking us out. When the drugs run out, exactly. now what do I do? And they don't have, you know, 10 minutes does not solve chronic illness. No, exactly. It never has. When you're in pain and all your lab tests are normal, you know, what do we do? So 
I think that we have so much to offer moving forward, but we have to figure out how to like work with the healthcare systems that are in place. And then going back to your other question about how do you choose someone that you want to work with from the other end, you know? Well, I, mostly I just ask that you care, you know, and that you reach out. Because I'm not going to reach out to you to say, can I mentor you? Like, <laughs> I have ego, not that much ego. But most providers will have a cup of coffee with you. Now, some want to turn that mentorship into something that is money generating. And I get that because every minute of your life starts to count. You know, the more you develop your practice and your personal life, both are important and both have limitations on what they can do. So you got to grow. Um, my mentality is not in that. Like my service, my business is built to support us giving back to our community. So that's why I do business classes. That's why I'm working with the OEMP to try to develop startup kits is because I think we need this 10 years ago and I'm kind of distraught that our profession hasn't done it yet. And any of you who want to help me with this, we all have to do this. We need more mentorship for everybody. At residency, this was one of the things that I think you know is on your list of questions is, should residency be mandatory? Um, yes and no. Like, should school residency be mandatory for everyone? No. Should mentorship and direct residency mentorship be a requirement before you go on your own? I'd like it to be available to every single person that graduates. And if you choose not to do that, then I would like to have a conversation about where your ego comes from. Like, everyone should be asking for mentorship when you graduate because as much as you think you know, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Like, you're going to get out there and it's going to be a thousand questions that UpToDate has answers and you start drifting allopathically because the resources you have are allopathic. We don't have great online databases for us to ask standard of care questions for, well, what herb is first line intervention? No one agrees. Is it hibiscus? Is it dandelion leaf? Which one tastes better? You know, like, no one, there's not that. So... How, how are you going to grow as a provider? How are you going to challenge yourself? How are you going to get through that? Other people. Yeah. We are the information source at this point. A hundred percent. Like I still have mentors like that I am in contact with all the time because as far as I'm concerned, everyone should be leveling up all the time. So you should always need support from a community and from a mentor. It's going to change. My mentors have changed and evolved over time as I've had different like endeavors, but I... I agree with you 100%. I feel like if you don't need that, where is your ego? Or are you playing a big enough game? Because, um, yeah. And I think most people in our profession are pretty willing to be supportive. That's, been my, that's not, been my experience. They're not the right person for you. Exactly. You know, that's the answer. <laughs> that's how you know. It's someone who's willing to show up and be with you. Yeah. They should ideally have something in common with you. Or if they're coming and asking me for mentorship... If you're asking me about mental mental health, I'm not the right person for you. Like, yes, I work with people who have that, but I don't manage that. Mm -hmm. I do craniosacral and mindfulness practice for that, you know? Yeah. If you want to talk pain management, sweet. You want to talk fibro, great, let's talk. You want to talk business, those are my sweet spots. So what are the things that you're trying to push? So, like, that goes for your practice, too. You know, it's not just business stuff. It's... When I started, it was not fibromyalgia. It was manip, and it was like manual therapy. I was a massage therapist. It was, you know, musculoskeletal injuries. That's my start in pain management. And then you go and you start getting more complex patients. 
okay, now I'm working with a little bit of chronic fatigue combined with pain and maybe a little fibro, but it's basically just adrenal fatigue. Yes, I'm a genius. I cured adrenal fatigue, you know? And then you keep going and then it's, uh, you move to Oregon where you can prescribe opioids. By the way, in Washington, you can't prescribe half the medications you can prescribe here. And it is super overwhelming when now you suddenly are responsible for those. So I need to get training in opioid therapy because I'm saying I do pain management and musculoskeletal stuff, and yet I have no idea what the difference between a hydrocodone and an oxycodone, what is this Dilaudid people are talking about? I feel like that's only in hospitals. Oh wait, my patient's on it every day. You know, like, and then you go to the next level. Now it's, now for me it's biofilms. That's my next, first was neurotransmitters and that's been a great asset. And now it's biofilms is the next layer and histamine is the next layer. And it's like, mm-hmm. you get the conferences. That's, you find the people that teach it. And then you talk to them in the conference and you say, hey, I'm fascinated by what you're talking about. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I email you some questions? I have a case I'd like to ask you about. Even very well-known, like Dr. Pornadelli, president of the AMP, owns a giant clinic, you know, has all these theses and papers, answered an email for me. I had one class with him one time at Bastyr, and he did not know who I was, you know, like, and yet I sent him a case about a post-MI uh, cholesterol management and why were they hassling him to take a statin even when I had him well controlled and his inflammation markers were down and he clearly succinctly wrote me back within a week you know it's like give them time and most people will write you back yeah I agree with that I think you have to just be willing to keep showing up and not take it personally if you're trying to network with people who are more successful and busier than you are but you know offer something of value offer to you know bring them lunch buy them coffee Ooh, lunch. Everyone eats lunch. That's Everybody how, eats lunch. That's how vendors get in. That's how you can get in. You know, like yeah. when people come and want to talk to us. You will bring us lunch. Mm-hmm. That is that. And I will only take sharkies or yum bowls because that is food I will eat. You know, like <laughs> you can be as discerning as you want because your business and time is valuable. Yep. Totally. Hope everyone heard that. Sharkies and yum bowls. <laughs> <laughs> we'll add that to the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I normally contribute a lot more to these podcasts, but I could just listen to you guys talk about business all night because it's, I feel like I've learned more in the last 45 minutes than I've learned in some other more academic settings. So what are the things you're like most scared about? Well, I have a little bit of a different possible trajectory because I have a research background and I have to decide about whether I'm, what role that's going to play in my future. Mm -hmm. And I think... More than anything, I personally am the most scared about not being able to do both clinical practice and research, right now at least. I think that's the coolest part about where we're at in history, is there's literally no saturation. Mm -hmm. No saturation of any dream you want. You want to write a book? There's plenty of market space for naturopathic books. You want to um, run a clinic specifically for mental health? plenty of room whatever you want to do if you want to run research and that there's plenty of academic availability for that so again it's not about immediate response like you're not going to get your dream right out of school if you think starting a business is glamorous you are ludicrous you're going to sweat and you're going to be tired you're going to have to do all your own remodeling i placed floors i mean i had to learn to use a saw it was ridiculous um (laughs) So you do all these things that you don't expect to, but if you're thinking long-term, what is my heart's greatest desire? Like if I imagine my perfect balance, 
you can probably, we might not get right there, but you will get close. You just have to plan and build towards that. And you have, you know, you're kind of an overachiever, so you have networked yourself pretty well. You've set yourself up. <laughs> but I think that speaks to what we all face, which is none of us is a single faceted person or pr- provider. You know, we all have lots of things we want to do. Um, and I would just say go out and do it. Like, when I started, I couldn't have been on the OEMP board. Now I have built my business to support me being on the OEMP board because it is financially smart for us to invest in legislature. Uh, or if I wanted to go into academics, I could build that into my into my schedule. You know, like you just have to plan for that and you can make it happen. Yeah, I would add what I have to offer comes more just from self-development than from anything I ever learned within naturopathic medicine. But I feel like when we're trying to make plans, like you, you think about where do I want to be in five years? What are my big ultimate goals? But then all you can do is the next thing that's right in front of you. It's really a one step at a time where you do residency. And I remember stressing in residency thinking, I need to create this job. I, you know, I put all this pressure on myself to be like five steps ahead of where I was. But really, it was like I couldn't be there yet because honestly, like the job I ended up getting didn't even exist at the time. And, you know, it's like you you can only do one thing. And it's like the mentors, they kind of showed up like I knew who to ask when it came time that I needed a mentor and contract negotiation. It was like, you know, there's always people who were like, you just looked at the people who were like one to five steps ahead of you and ask them how they did it. Like none of us have the perfect answer or perfect solution. I feel like we're all just figuring it out, but you just want to get advice from people who are a little further ahead. I know people in my graduating class would, we would often give advice to each other. And that's like the worst case scenario (laughs) because you're all playing at the exact same level. So, you know, talk to people who are like one step ahead. So what I'm hearing is work hard, but trust the universe and maybe try to take care of yourself along the way. Hopefully that is the progressive part. At least for me, that was like my weakest. I am a huge Hermione Granger fan. And that was like my whole motto first year of school when you're just dying because you're studying so much. It's like, what would Hermione do? And then I would study another five hours, right? You like just kind of martyr yourself through school. And then if you're a resident in a school or probably anywhere else, you martyr yourself a little bit more to just learn the lessons. And I think that's the... The cultivation of a good physician, you know, that whole physician heal thyself uh, amendment with that I, I would be in support of for our um, principles is <laughs> like you have to learn to walk the walk. And in so doing and being gentle on yourself in the process, you have so much more compassion and understanding for the real human experience, which is not student loans, which is, you know, following the advice that you give people you know, when you're saying you are overworking and yet you, you yourself are overworking, it's way less impactful, both in a tangible, they can see the bags under your eyes and that your clothes are misshapen and not washed and your hair is oily, you know, those things, but also the energy of what you're conveying has way less impact than when even a small degree of self-investment I noticed when, as soon as I start, you know, getting on track with my own self, I got myself a primary care doctor that I actually listened to what she says, you know, six doctors in. We're the worst patients. Um, but you find someone, and when you first start doing it, there's so much more authority when you're saying someone else should do something. Like, I think you should spend money on this lab. 
Well, if you haven't done it, you don't actually know what it feels like to be tight on money and to be asked to spend $159 on neurotransmitter testing. And then when you actually have to budget for it, you're like, that's how much this means to people. And now when I say it, I'm walking the same walk that I'm asking them to walk. You know, mm -hmm. whatever those things are, you have to keep growing in yourself because you're asking your patients to grow with you. And you need to be at least one step ahead of them, right? Just one step in your health ahead of who you're treating. That's all is, that's required. So treat really sick people and you will stay really <laughs> sick. But if you want them to get healthier, you are going to have to get healthier than you are now. Yeah. I think taking care of ourselves is like a huge missing link. Like our education doesn't support us in it. And I'm the same way. Just totally like burn myself out into the ground in residency. And then when I started in practice, I felt that same pressure. Like, I, you know, I'd work like just for hours on all sorts of things. My charts, like there was this, just this perfectionism that was driving me. And I'm still figuring it's still a work in progress. But I think just having like an end point and a good enough point. I think for me, it was like learning the art of, all right, that's good enough. I notice what I say to patients all the time. Like the things that you need in your own life are probably what you're going to see the most in, in the reflections of your patients. So right. like this week, the word enough, you know, like that's the theme of my week is just uh, perfectionism is the enemy of excellence, you know, and allowing yourself whatever it is that you give to be enough in that moment. And how you do that is by being present and showing up. And that is all anyone can do. You can't do more than that. And if you're expecting more than that of yourself, that's where you get mental health problems. So <laughs> like, or if you're telling some like 10 people they need to drink more water while you're drinking your third cup of coffee of the day, yeah. perhaps that is actually a message equally important to yourself. Mm -hmm. That's my own. Every week I get hit with something where I'm like, oh. Yeah, that thing that I haven't been doing has been every one of my patients, you know, whatever that is. They are mirrors and teachers to us. Yeah, in a beautiful and humbling sort of way. Yeah. We've touched on this a little bit, but I imagine that you might be familiar with burnout. Yeah. Um, I have zero cortisol, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that anymore. And uh, when do you know when it's take, time to take a break or vacation? If I know I need a vacation, I am six weeks past due. Like, I am a workaholic, and I love my... I love being a doctor. I love what I'm doing. I love creating this thing that is... Uh, I keep having this vision of, like, I am a job factory. Like, I want to build a business that supports more and more people and having salaried incomes. And that is such a weird passion that I never thought I would have. But like the capitalist in me has been awoken. Um, so normally it's when Stephanie says, Megan, we're going to schedule some time off. Uh, <laughs> so, you, you know, I suggest every six months at least taking a full week off, take some long day weekends. You constantly have to adapt your schedule. So um, this month, and balance is not a stagnant thing. Like you never find the perfect schedule because then life changes. So just know that from a booking standpoint, it takes six to eight weeks to block off time when you're in real life practice. And even then, at this point, that's still probably 10 to 12 patient appointments we're rescheduling at, at six to eight weeks out. So whenever you're taking a vacation, the longer in advance you plan it, the more you know your own pace for burnout, you know, and just mental fatigue, 
The other thing is plan whether you're an independent contractor or not, save money so that you can have sick days because mental health days are real things and you will have days where you are not in a good position to be treating people. And that is the important thing. It cannot be about money. That cannot be why you're showing up to treat someone. And if you are mentally overstressed, don't care anymore, you're not going to be doing good medicine. You have the potential to do harm and it is unethical to show up to work. Mm -hmm. So take the time when you need it. So that is why we offer sick days at our clinic because we all need those. We all need that and we all need vacation time. So build it into your budget so that you can give yourself that. Plan for it before you need it. What would you be doing if you weren't a doctor? Oh, I'd probably be sitting in a tree somewhere saving a forest like I did in undergrad or working in a recycling company like I did in undergrad. I was a super hippie and I love medicine because it's just a really specific form of activism where you can have impact. Like my whole mission in life is to make the world a better place for seven generations from now. And healthcare is just one place where I saw so many people get hosed and treated poorly and I saw my grandma get misdiagnosed, so she had less time in her life because of cancer. I saw my mom get told it was her weight at every single doctor's appointment for 15 years when that's not what her health issue was. She has fibromyalgia. You know, like it's those types of things where you see how I want to be better than that. And I want to change one person's experience from that to feeling like they're empowered to be who they really are and to take care of themselves. What kind of awesome job do we have? This is such a gift. And people show up and let us talk to them about it and trust what we have to say. And the coolest thing is this medicine works. You know, if you use it and you really trust the body's ability to heal itself, it does. Even in the most collapsed people, if you can meet them where they are at and gently encourage that vitality through whatever mechanism, like I've seen people from the brink come back and it is epic and awesome. To behold the vise in all its glory. If you could go back, would you do anything differently? Oh, yeah. So, year one. <laughs> year one. So, mostly it's about the reality of finances. Like, uh-huh. I think when you're in school, because you get that quarterly check, there's so much comfort around. And I remember feeling broke with that check. Like, this cannot possibly afford me a place to live that I would want to live because Seattle is overpriced. And yet, in hindsight, man, I would have lived in a slum. I would have, like, just eaten it. I would have done as good as I could. I would have gotten food stamps first year because in Washington, you're eligible as a student. You probably are in Oregon too with the you biggest are. Medicaid. Like get all the freaking help you can. Get OHP. Get all of it and start putting money aside now because starting a business costs money. Like if I was so incredibly blessed with my family, with having had residency to where I got two years of grace to save some money, my business would not have happened. And I don't know what I would have been doing. I would have had to take other jobs and worked, you know, menial. I would have been a phlebotomist. And as I mentioned, I wear sandals. I don't even like poking people. You know, like, so start saving right away. The other thing is, as you're learning, start taking notes and writing articles. Write blogs that you can, and write down sources. Gosh, I took so many notes with no sources that are now completely meaningless in terms of putting it on the internet or putting my name with it. So those are the types of things that, you know, I invest a lot of time in a clinic notebook that is so anal retentive that I almost never use. Like the things you think you're going to need are very minimal that you can't just look up right away. Like the internet is amazing. Up to date is glorious. Um, you're going to know the 50 herbs that you use. You're going to know the 50 products that you use regularly. It's not like you have to 
over jam that into a document that you can search, which I spent way too much time on that clinic notebook for something that maybe the first year was worth it, first two years of practice, but I haven't even opened the document in six months. Like I have four pieces of paper. That's all I use on a regular basis. And it's all neurotransmitters because that's what I'm learning right now. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff you know, you know. The rest of it, you look up because that's what the internet's for. I love that there's so many school assignments I could have used for my website had I been just a little more forward thinking with it. Mm-hmm. All that work you're putting in already to school right now, like could be going towards something in the future. So I like that. Um, on the other hand, I did create like an Evernote black book and I use it all the time still. Weirdo. I know. I know. <laughs> and I, I just like sourced it like Dr. So-and-so said this is their herbal protocol for adrenal fatigue. I have some of those. I took all the PowerPoints that I ever got through school and they are all in a searchable index. Wow. Also, I have all of those PowerPoints and all the notes I ever took from any of those classes and scans of all of my handwritten anal-retentive notes. And so it was like, I think I just took it to the point where it was like, for me, I'm a kinesthetic learner, so doing it in and of itself was what I needed to do. Yeah. But did I need to be so anal retentive about it? And that is the like, no, do what you need to get the basics in. Boards are horrible. Basic science is way more detail oriented. Uh, boards after school is a lot more critical thinking than memorization. There's memorization involved, but it's much more critical thinking oriented than I would have thought. And so I had worked again to memorize all these little details that in the real world, that is what the internet is for. Like, what are the reference ranges for these labs? They're printed on the lab. You know, like, (laughs) it comes with it. You don't have to memorize that. You start to know the ones you use a lot. And the rest, you look at the the lab. Also, I'm pretty sure they provided those on the board exam, which I did not know they were going to do. Wah, wah. All right. So we like to ask everyone these three questions. Just as far as your practice right now. Do you have a favorite app that you use? Favorite app? Let's see. When I first started the, like, screening guidelines app, I used that all the time until it was, like, just ingrained in my head. Yeah. Uh, AS, it was, like, a long slew of letters. USFPTF is what oh. it ends up being, but the name of the app is like ARQEPPS or something like that. I vaguely remember downloading that in residency, and I haven't looked at it since then. Yeah, residency was really helpful because I didn't yeah. know what I was doing. Yeah. And now it's, I don't use a lot of apps. I use UpToDate all the time, mostly because I see patients on a lot of drugs, and drug interactions are scary, and I titrate a lot of medications, and so it's like looking up side effects, looking up chemistry adjustments that we're going to see. Um, what are the doses available? Can you divide the tablet? That's mostly what I'm looking up. And then I just take a lot of CEUs. You know, that's more what I am using than apps. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book? Well, Indispensable is a derm book because you will reference that. Um, Because I am horrible at derm and they all look like rashes to me, especially in kids. They're going to die is my diagnosis pretty much. Um... I use, sometimes Merck Manual is easier to use than UpToDate in terms of labs or FisherBox, really good. When I was first starting the differential differential diagnosis of common complaints by Seller, I used that one all the time. I used it to study for boards. I used it for um, when I I did my interview for residency because that's a big part of your 
residency interview is, are you going to kill someone? And do you know what the differential diagnosis for abdominal pain? And that it includes ectopic pregnancy. Like, those are the things that you have to memorize. And uh, blue book, red book, you know. I have, we have a huge library. So I use yeah. a lot of them once in a while, just yeah. depending. And then I use my, my best resource is my colleagues. Because we all have completely different expertise areas. And they're the quickest resource I have most of the time. Most of the time. I agree with that completely. So last question. Do you have a favorite naturopathic modality? Uh, that I like to do? Um, I think doceri is the best modality. You know, I know that's not a traditional one that you would say that, but education and empowerment of the of the patient is the most important tool that you have. They have to know why you are doing what you're doing with them for any of the other stuff to work, for lifestyle especially, motivation, motivational interviewing, maybe that's that's what it is. And a close second would be craniosacral therapy and mindfulness. <laughs> right in there. Mostly because it's a practice builder, which everybody Okay, here's my other tip. Take this home kids. <laughs> Develop something that people need to do every single week for at least a short period of time because that's how you're going to build your patient volume up. So most patient patients you're you know, things that we do at our clinic are things like injection therapies, craniosacral therapy, constitutional hydro, and nutritional counseling. Like those are all things if you do phys physical medicine that's kind of the craniosacral camp, but finding something where they need to come in every week for monitoring means that they are coming in every week, which means your encounter volume is going to go up, you're more likely to get better results and more likely to get reviews on your on your Google and Yelp pages, which is how you get more patients to come in for those things. Yeah, because even if they're coming in for, say, physical medicine, you still can check in with them and they're more likely to be compliant with any dietary lifestyle exercise. Like, you get that, like, in-person contact time. So I do think you get better results, like, the more often you see somebody. And if you do those other things, you can go from a 99212 to a 99213 if you're actually doing some management of not just the musculoskeletal complaint. Mm-hmm. Hashtag 50 more dollars. <laughs> awesome. This was so fun, Megan. Thank you so much for taking the time to a pleasure. do this. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Practice Sessions. If you enjoyed the interview, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. For show notes and more information, visit our website at www.thepracticesessionspodcast.com.